Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace, from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice, I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walked after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it, from many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God speed. For he that biddeth him God speed is a, partake, is a partaker of his evil deeds. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of the elect sister greet thee. Amen. This time it's uh, my privilege to ask our brother Don Pell to come up and give us the message that the Lord has laid on his heart this morning. Brother Don. Hopefully you've kept your place in Second John. First of all, John introduces himself as the elder. And we can look at that from two different directions. First of all, his position in the church as an overseer, presbyteros, Mr. Schofield explains. Older in age, but Mr. Vine also says it can apply to bishops, overseers, episcopoi, when Paul called the elders of the church in Ephesus. And remember, he told them to shepherd the flock. And so perhaps John is referring to his position as an elder in the church. But then, of course, elder being older in age. And at this point in his life, John certainly would be up in years. An elder, of course, is not a novice. 
And that, of course, implies certain amounts of experience and maturity. And certainly John would certainly qualify in that score. He served as one of the founding members of the church. Paul writes to the Ephesians that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And uh, I think John would also agree with Paul that it's a good work. Yes, uh, people are called elders or overseers, but it's really a good work. If a man desires that position, Paul writes to Timothy, if he desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. So it's more than a title. It's actually a work to be done, feeding the flock of God. So John would have met all the qualifications of the elder or the bishop, all the same persons in Scripture. He must be blameless. And certainly we look at John's life and it's certainly exemplary. He would be the husband of one wife, and we believe that to be the case. Temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, and able or apt to teach. Some people have a little problem with the apt to teach. They feel that that implies all the guys who get on the platform and deliver sermons. But those of us who've been in education understand that there's more than one way to teach. Uh, it's interesting, when I was going through my training in college, they would get up in front of us and say, now remember that lecturing is not necessarily the most effective way to teach. As they were what? Lecturing. Pretty cool, right? They get up and lecture and say, now lecturing is not necessarily the best way to teach. As they were lecturing to us. So, <laughs> do as I say, not as I practice, I guess. But nonetheless, we've discovered that that to be the case. That certainly... One who knows the Word of God and can explain the Word of God in a conversation or whatever the case may be would be clearly apt to teach, would know the Word of God and could express it. John, of course, had the shepherd's heart as an overseer. Peter and his fellow apostles would have known personally about John's love for Christ and his people. And then surely he would be included in that admonition that Peter wrote to the overseers. Remember, he said, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when we think of John, we think of love, don't we? Behold what love. But boundless love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Peter, of course, would have observed John leaning on Jesus' breast at supper time. We often refer to him as John the Beloved. John, along with the other disciples, had the best teacher that ever lived to equip them as the founding members, the elders, the overseers of the church. And they, of course, would have had the very first ones to hear the mandate. And that is, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, 
and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Directly from the Lord himself. John here is advanced in age and wisdom. Now think about John's life. Um, think of all the things that would have happened and that he would have observed from the time the Lord came along the shore of Galilee and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. To the time when the Lord said, go therefore and make disciples of all men. Wow, think about that. Think of the things that John would have observed. The voice from heaven, he would have observed that, wouldn't he? The miracles, he would have observed that. The blind being made to see, the lame being able to walk, a person actually being raised from the dead. John would know all about that. He had first-hand experience of that. And so clearly, but then think about this. Having had all that experience, firsthand experience, John then would have been the recipients of the apostles who were given special gifts during that time, gifts of healing. Remember the man who was lame from his mother's womb. Peter said to him, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do I, have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. They had that special gift that the Holy Spirit gave to them during that particular time. John would have been part of the early progression of the gospel. The writer of Hebrews explains how that progression came to us. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first, at the first, how do we hear it first, began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. It wasn't arbitrary on their part. God directed them when they performed these miracles as led by the Holy Spirit of God. So think about how this progression happened. First of all, it's spoken by the Lord himself. Just think for a minute. What words did the Lord speak that would have been gospel? Salvation. You think of something? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Think of any others in your mind? To Nicodemus, what did he say? Except the man be born again. Can't I enter the kingdom? There's some gospel, isn't it? All right. Think of any others? I'm kind of groping here myself a little bit. But it, uh, yeah, come unto me. There we go. And whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So there was the gospel, wasn't it? And the gospel was delivered by the Lord himself. He came to planet Earth. That's how it all started. Then it was confirmed by those who heard him. Well, that would be John, wouldn't it? John heard the voice. John heard the words. John saw the miracles. John would be clearly qualified as one of those who uh, observed it. 
Now, the miracles performed by Christ when he was on earth were really designed to authenticate the fact that he was the Son of God. Remember, that was one of the things that the uh, Pharisees had a problem with, that he claimed to be the Son of God. The miracles performed by the Holy Spirit through the apostles were used to authenticate the gospel, authenticate the gospel of grace. So the miracles that were performed by Christ himself authenticated that he indeed was the Son of God. Remember Nicodemus said, no man can do these miracles. No man can do these miracles unless God's with him. So he already right away was giving a hint that he was dealing with the Son of God. And then the apostles later on were given these special gifts of healing. And they, again, were used to authenticate, because remember, they were the foundational members of the church. The church was early, and it was just beginning, getting started. So now we come to the controversial, the elect lady. Who is the elect lady? You maybe pondered this. I have, and I'm not sure I'm going to satisfy you after this message, but some believe that it refers to the church, the church as a body the Bride of Christ. We know the church is referred to as the Bride of Christ. Come, I will show you the Bride, the Lamb's wife, we read there in the book of Revelation. And I think you could perhaps build a case for that, referring to the group of believers. Mr. McDonald writes this. Others think that the letter was addressed to the elect Kyria, K-Y-R-I-A, the name could be the Greek equivalent to the Armeric name Martha. I didn't know this. Martha, both mean lady. I didn't know you know that Martha means lady. So he says Kyria or Martha. The most common view is that it's an unnamed Christian lady and her children. Perhaps a very influential Christian lady. Perhaps a very gifted and talented Christian lady who was there in that fellowship that John was writing to. Would they be the biological children or would they be the spiritual children? We could ponder that for a bit too, could we not? They could very well have been her biological offspring and a very influential lady who did an amazing job of raising her children and they were a big influence there in the assembly of the saints. On the other hand, it would make a lot of sense too and if they might have been her spiritual children. She was in, instrumental, rather, in bringing them to Christ, her children or her spiritual children. Don, John doesn't elaborate exactly. But it would appear, if we look at this whole thing, that John is really writing to a much broader audience than just this lady and her children. And perhaps that would lead us to believe that he's talking about more than just her biological children. Remember, he writes that he loves the lady and her children in truth. That's verse 1. And then refers to all those who believe, all those rather who have known the truth. And so here again, maybe a much broader audience that John has in mind here. Now here the idea is, why a lady? Why would he address a lady in this epistle? Normally, men are addressed. Remember, Paul writes to who? Timothy, right? 
He writes to Timothy. We have Titus. Well, the epistles, and it's the men that are normally being addressed. But in this case, it's a lady. Why would that possibly be? Well, first of all, remember, one of the things that John's doing in this epistle is he's writing about deceivers. He says, many deceivers have gone out into the world. And that would remind us that Eve was first deceived by the serpent, bringing sin into the world by her own admission. Remember what she said to God? The serpent deceived me and I ate. So she knew that she'd been deceived and she clearly admitted it. Paul speaks of ungodly men who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. If you want to find somebody to convince, find a gullible person. That would be one of the first places you might want to start, a gullible person. Women are usually the very first line of defense in the home. The men are the head of the home, but the women are the ones who nurture and care in the home, and perhaps the very first line of defense. The deacons are told, are found, to be ruling their children in their own houses well, as head of the household. The women are told to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste homemakers good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed, Titus writes. So here the lady or the woman is the first line of defense. And that probably is the case in this situation. We'll talk about that just a little bit later, about how important that might be that the lady is singled out in this epistle. Now we get to deal with the abiding and the eternal truth. John refers to the truth which abides in us and will be in us forever. Now, the truth. People often wonder, what's really true? Well, first of all, the truth comes to us by God's grace. God bestowing. I, grace is hard to define. But one of the definitions that I've always enjoyed was that grace is the provision for the operation of God's love through Jesus Christ on behalf of man, especially those who depend on him. That's not complete, but it helps me. Because it says to me that grace is what makes God's love operable. Grace is what makes God's love To us, it brings it down to us. The hymn writer, remember how well he expressed it? We love that line, don't we? Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. There it is in heaven, right? But then how does it get to earth? Oh, the grace. Ah, there it is. That brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span. What a beautiful line of prose that we have in that beautiful hymn. And so that's grace, God bestowing. And then, of course, With grace, we need mercy. And, of course, mercy is God withholding. Through the Lord's mercies, 
Jeremiah writes in his Lamentations, we are not what? Consumed. Whoa. It's the Lord's mercies. We are not consumed. And along with God's grace and along with God's mercy, we have God's peace. And that's God approving. God approving us. The writer of Romans says, being justified by faith, we have what? Peace. There it is. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Pilate asked the Lord, what is truth? Remember that? He didn't really stand or pause for an answer, did he? He really did. Maybe he didn't even want to know. He was probably terribly confused. He claimed to be the Son of God. Really? Was he? And what he didn't know is that he was looking at truth. Truth was right smack dab there in front of him. But he was obviously, and the Jews did that on purpose, didn't they? They wanted to confuse Pilate. We have a law, they said. We have a law. No, really, what law? He didn't know about their laws. So he says, well, what is, what's, what's truth? You know, what can I believe? What can I believe here? And the Lord didn't really answer him there. He probably knew he didn't care. Well, praying to the Father, Jesus said, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So there it is. There's where the truth comes from. God the Son is truth. I am the way, the what? Truth and the life. God the Holy Spirit is referred to as the spirit of truth. There it is. So it's God and Christ and his word are our sources of truth. Abiding truth comes when the spirit of truth actually comes in and operates inside of our hearts. That's abiding truth. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? Paul says to the Corinthian believers, God's eternal word contains truth. Remember what the Lord says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. There it is. Being sanctified. That's the abiding love. That's the eternal love. It comes from God the Father, through God the Son, bring into the hearts of men by the Holy Spirit of God. There you have the operation of the Godhead. And therein lies abiding truth. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now love. John talks about love here, and he certainly would be qualified. John the Beloved. It's a basic premise that's found in truth. John states it as a commandment from the beginning. We find that in verse number 5. He calls out and identifies deceivers who do not require a new commandment. He writes that anyone who denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that person doesn't know a thing about God's love. The mere fact of the matter is that Christ coming to earth and dying a sacrificial death to save mankind, that is the greatest story ever told. It's the greatest love story ever told. And interestingly enough, it's illustrated in a little verse that's probably the best known, best memorized verse in the entire Bible. And you know where it is, don't you? 
the Gospel of John, chapter number 3, where we read, it began with God. It's for God so love the world. Well, why? Oh, later on, before, later on, no, before this, rather, John had written, God is love. So the God who is love, by his very nature, so loved. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? The God who is loved, so loved the world. And then it was delivered by God the Son, that he gave his only begotten Son. Here again, the operation of the Godhead again we see. Imparted to those who believe. Ah, there's the Holy Spirit. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we see the operation of the Godhead in one of the best-known verses in the entire Bible. God the Father who is love, who willed it. God the Son who administered it, brought it to earth. And God the Holy Spirit who brings it to the very heart of mind. And that is the Godhead in operation. It begins with believers that we love one another Demonstrated by our walk, our lifestyle, he says that you should walk in it. One thing to understand love, but another thing to walk in it. And that gives us a sense of differentiating between, between rather love for Christ and love of Christ. Is there a difference? We love him, why? Because he first loved us and he gave himself for us, that's worthy of love, and we love him for that. But the love of Christ, that gets a little deeper. That gets just a little bit deeper. That's that abiding truth. That's that abiding love that's generated by God the Holy Spirit through his word. To the Ephesians, Paul writes, To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the love of Christ. He says that love is the love that compels us. It's the love that constrains us. It's the love that motivates us. It's the love that drives us. Christ in you. What? The hope of glory. So there, God's love being generated inside of us by the Holy Spirit of God. That's the love of Christ. Now we talk about the deceivers. They were busy then, they're busy now. It says they've gone out into the world, verse number 7. What do they do? Well, they come along and they say, first of all, Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. He was not God. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. He was just a man who was born, said a lot of great things, Unfortunately, was misunderstood and died a horrible death, and he's gone. Too bad, but he sure left some great things for us to consider. Those people are referred to by John as Antichrist, and, and not the Antichrist. That guy's coming along sometime. But it's an Antichrist. It's really a, a doctrine or a feeling or a belief, an Antichrist against Christ. You see, it's one thing to refuse to believe. The agnostic. I refuse to believe. Okay, fine. Go your way. It's another thing to openly defy the truth of Scripture. 
That's an antichrist. Goes about trying to convince people that the gospel of Christ is not true. He's not the son of God. He didn't come to save the world from their sin. He's not the lamb of God. He's not what scripture says he is. You know, the church in Corinth was beset with other versions of the gospel. And it's, a, it's really, Paul uses, I guess, sarcasm. And I, I did this, I wrote this down in God's Word translation, because you really capture the sarcasm that Paul writes when he says, this is what he writes. When someone comes to you telling you about another Jesus, whom we didn't tell you about, you're willing to put up with it. How about that? Then he goes on, when you receive a spirit that is different from the spirit you received earlier, you're also willing to put up with that. And he goes on, when someone tells you good news that is different from the good news you already accepted, you're willing to put up with that too. Shame on you, huh? Paul is saying. And the believers in Galatians had the same problem. Here's what Paul had to write to them. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, an antichrist gospel. Believers are told to look to yourselves, examine your own faith. If you refuse to believe the doctrine of Christ, then John says, then our preaching is in vain, and we won't receive a full reward. Well, the full reward. What's the full reward? Now we... Now think about this. You spend great amounts of time preaching the doctrine of Christ. And then people turn from it. And you say, wow, I didn't get the reward of seeing someone come to Christ. I didn't get the reward of the joy of knowing that my ministry was fruitful. And I sense that that's somewhat of what John is talking about. There's a nice, it's a rewarding experience to know that the word is presented, it falls on good ground, and there's a receptivity to it. But otherwise, you tend to think, well, I'm spinning my wheels. Well, we're never spinning our wheels. But John says, you you get a full reward. I don't think he's talking about an eternal reward here. He could be, but I'm not certain that he is. I think he's perhaps referring to the idea you don't get the the reward of knowing that your ministry was effective because the Antichrist came along and just totally removed it. Believers are warned, do not receive him into your house nor greet them. We find that in verse number 10. And he says in verse 11, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now, I think this greet is a much um, uh, more intense than what we normally associate with greet. Knock, knock, knock. Open the door. Hi, I'm John Doe. Well, that's greeting, right? Well, greeting, I think, in this context means you invite that person into your home. Remember we talked about the mother being the kind of the protector of the home, the nourisher of the home? Uh, During that day and even today, uh, that wouldn't be uncommon, would it? 
for someone to expect the lady of the home to be there, and you knock on the door, and you're going to, hopefully, this gullible lady doesn't invite them in and engage herself and her family with this antichrist doctrine. John says, you don't want to do that. You don't want to have anything to do with him. Now, when I was growing up in the 50s, door-to-door was a common thing. Do you remember the Fuller Brush Salesman? Sure you do. How many remember the Fuller Brush Salesman? All right. Knock, 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 right? Some guys made a living selling Fuller Brushes. How about the encyclopedia? Knock, 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 you know? And back then, you'd have the internet. Encyclopedia had a wealth of knowledge. And people would buy it for their children, the encyclopedia. Vacuum cleaners. Oh, my, you get you know, put some dust on the floor, dirt on the floor, and get that Hoover vacuum out there and show the lady how it works, right? And, you know, when you do that, you invite them in, and the next thing you know, you're going to buy a Hoover vacuum, aren't you? Yeah, or you're going to buy an encyclopedia. You're going to buy a fuller brush because you've engaged yourself. You've allowed yourself to be engaged in that person. That's what John's talking about here. Don't go engaging yourself in those kinds of people. They are antichrist. And I think he addresses the lady who is the nourisher of the home. She's the first line of defense when people come knocking on the door and try to get into the home. Now we talk about the doctrine of Christ. We need to finish this up. In context, it would appear that Christ coming in the flesh, that's the core of that doctrine. Christ, God-man, coming in the flesh. He writes that it involves both the Father and the Son. The Jews weren't certain that God ever had a Son. Remember, they refused to accept that claim, and that's the one thing that they challenged Pilate with. Remember, he claimed to be the Son of God. That's blasphemy. And Pilate, of course, succumbed to that kind of thinking. God sending his Son in the flesh is at the core of God's ultimate revelation to man. Remember what the writer of Hebrews writes. He said, in the last times he spoke to us, how? Through the prophets. In these last days, however, how does he speak to us? Ah, through his son. There you have it. Whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. So that's the doctrine of Christ. Christ coming in the flesh, the God-man, and giving his life as an atonement for the sins of the entire world. And then we have that concluding line, and that's verse 12. I hope to come to you and speak face to face. And then he talks about not using paper and ink. And that would suggest to me that John actually put this in writing with paper and ink. Why? Because he had it designed for a broader audience. And it was designed to become part of the canon of Scripture. But perhaps, John, out of respect for this lady and the friendship with this lady, uh, wished to share other things that were not necessarily going to be included in the canon of Scripture. So he says, yes, I'd like to come, have a conversation, personally, maybe a very, very personal conversation that I'm not going to share here with the rest of the saints. And so there's John the Beloved. What do you think of when you think of John? Well, lots of things, don't you? Behold, son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. God is love. My, John the Beloved. What a commendable person in Scripture. 
John the Beloved. And he warns the saints, don't be fooled, don't be deceived by these people. Enjoy the love, of, not only for Christ, but the love of Christ. Have it dwelled in your heart and in your mind and in your soul. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we're thankful for your dear servant, John the Beloved. My, how close he was to the very Son of God. And how clear his words come ringing to us this morning as he talks to us about love and those who deceive and the doctrine of Christ. And we just pray, Father, that uh, these thoughts that have been shared this morning might have been a blessing to those who've listened. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.